who judges me. Therefore, church, do not pronounce judgment until the time, that is, until the Lord comes. And Paul is saying, because God alone is judge, Timothy should be consumed with Christ and his kingdom and preach the word. What is the word that's being talked about? Josh did a great job of preaching last week through chapter 3. And if you just hit rewind just a little bit in 2 Timothy, you look at chapter 3 and you look at verse 15, and it's that word that Timothy was taught growing up. If you look back, it's that word that is called the God-breathed word. It's the inspired word of God. It's that word that is useful for teaching and correcting and for training in righteousness. So that we may be equipped for every good work. That's the word. And this word contains the whole counsel of God given to us for what we need to live faithfully to Him. That's why Paul says in Acts 20, 27, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And what's central to the whole counsel of God is Jesus Christ. That's why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. This is the Word of God that is being told to be proclaimed. And it is that Word proclaimed that will help us finish strong. Now, there are four commands that Paul attaches to that one command of preach the Word. You preach the word being ready in season and out of season. You preach the word reproving. You preach the word rebuking. You preach the word exhorting with complete patience and teaching. You see that? Be ready. That means you got to do it when you feel like it and when you don't feel like it. You preach the word in your homes, to your neighbors, to one another. You proclaim the word. This is how we will all finish strong. Not just Timothy, the, the leader of the church. All of us. Paul then tells Timothy that with the word in his hands, he should reprove. That is, correct individuals. Correct people. Rebuke. Call out sins. Exhort. That is, instruct and encourage. And do it with a sense of patience. So what does that mean? It means that there will be some times that the word is preached when you should expect it to grind a little bit against how you feel. It's going to do that. It's going to make you feel a little uncomfortable. It's called sanctification. Because there's not one person on the planet that is where they need to be. Not one. And we need His Word preached to continue to grind against the sin that's in our lives to make us more like Jesus. And you should expect also that His Word will comfort. Because there's exhortation. There's words of encouragement. That's why Paul calls the Scriptures, he says in Romans 15, that you might receive the encouragement of the Scriptures. But the teachers and the leaders should do it in such a way that they are patient. Patient in the giving of the word. There's got to be a characteristic of patience and gentleness and love. And as he talks about these, these individuals who are running away to 
accumulate teachers who agree with them. It's in the context of there are false teachers out there and you've got to be careful. And what's interesting about false teachers is that they're not only false in content, but Paul brings out that it's their attitude that also leads to sickness. That's why he calls it unhealthy. It says sound doctrine in some of your... um, versions, but it literally means unhealthy. What is making doctrine sick? It's when things are false, and it's also the attitude in which those teachers carry around. That's why he's laboring so hard to tell Timothy, be gentle, be patient. You've got to be in contrast. What does he say? These false teachers are characterized by meddling. They crave controversy. They quarrel. And here it says they accumulate teachers who agree with them. And now we know that we can all find people who agree with us. Agreement doesn't mean rightness. Hitler and Stalin found many people to agree with them. Agreement doesn't mean rightness. And here he's saying, if you look at it, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. These false teachers, they have an aroma about them. There's an arrogance, a craving of controversy, and a closed-mindedness. That's what this means. You gather teachers that only agree with you, and you struggle to listen to anyone else. Your mind begins to close in. And he's warning against that. This is why Paul is so adamant to Timothy. God hasn't given you a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. That's what the, the leaders of God need to be characterized by. And then it says they, they run off away to suit their own passions. Look at verse 4. They'll turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. These are false things. What leads people to not endure in healthy teaching? What is it? What what fatigues people that makes them not want to endure in healthy teaching? And there are many reasons. We see it all over our culture today. And the influence of those around us is really heavy. But one is a yearning for new. New is attractive. New is exciting. When you learn new information, even if it's wrong information, the fact that you've learned a new perspective on life, it excites you. And if that new information is accompanied by controversy, all of a sudden the cynic in the heart all of a sudden gets excited. You know it. You felt it. You felt it. Why do you like to hear dirt on people in the news? There's something wrong in our hearts that craves for wrongness to be seen Controversy to be stirred up. And here this yearning for new, what can happen is you can just get slightly off true north. But if this is true north and you're slightly off, you're headed for Canada. You're going to end up in North Carolina or something. You know, you're going the wrong direction. So the yearning for new sometimes can lead people to not endure in healthy teaching. Other reasons people don't endure is teaching, people want teaching that is easy. Easy teaching. The gospel calls us to surrender our very lives. It invites us 
into suffering, not a promise to spare us from it. The prosperity gospel is horrific in its claims that if you're faithful to God, you will be healthy and wealthy. That is not borne out in the Scriptures. Paul is in prison. And he is about to die for his faith. Easy can lead people to want a different gospel. Other reasons people don't endure in sound teaching is that they crave what is easy to understand. Not easy to live out, but easy to understand. There was a huge wave of anti-supernaturalism that was all over the church, and it's all over the church today. That's why some said, I don't believe the resurrection exists. You read that in 2 Timothy. That was what one was struggling. I don't believe the resurrection. Because it's supernatural. It's amazing. It's hard to understand. But we've got to understand that God is the one who's communicated to us. And that although we will be able to understand the Scriptures, there are things that will stretch and pull our understanding and some things that we won't fully understand. And if you cannot wrap your mind around that and be okay with biblical tension, then you might be tempted to run off to what is easy to understand. Here's what I mean. If you're not okay with biblical tension things hard to understand, you're never going to be okay with the Trinity. One God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Why do you think there's all these false religions that are out there? Because they're trying to wrestle with what biblical tension brings. What about the hypostatic union? That is, Jesus is fully God and fully man. Blows your mind. Yet the Scriptures teach it. If you want to run the path of easy, then you might follow something that says, oh, Jesus is just a man. God is God the Father. The Holy Spirit is some accomplice in all of this. I'm sorry. Our faith is beautifully nuanced and difficult to understand. The tension between faith and works. Faith is the foundation. I'm not saved by works, but my life will produce works. One's the roots, one's the fruit. Both are necessary. You deal with that kind of tension. The sovereignty of God and human responsibility. Is God sovereign? Is man free? Man's responsible. God is sovereign. Deal with these tensions. How the Bible talks about care for the poor and the vulnerable is nuanced. How the Bible talks about the relationship between the New and the Old Testament is nuanced. It's difficult. How the Bible talks about the problem of evil is nuanced and difficult. It's just not cut and dry, just really simple and easy. And sometimes we can run off because it's easy. I was talking to one of my boys the other day and he initiated the conversation and he said that he just really feels like he wants his faith to grow. And he used this analogy and I just felt like it was such a gift. I just, he says, I just want to grow deeper. And he, he said, just kind of came out and I just felt like this was good. He says, I'm not going to qualify for the Olympics if I'm only swimming in the kiddie pool. 
I was like, that sticks with me. That helps. And he's like, I feel that if my knowledge stays shallow, I'll have a shallow faith, and I'll think Christianity is shallow. But if I dive deep, then my faith will get deeper, and I will see that Christianity is deep. I was like, huh. That seems to be why Paul is pressing in on Timothy. This is a deep well where the word must be preached. And we as a people will be spending our lives studying and learning from the scriptures. The final reason I won't spend much time there is that sometimes people don't endure because they want more law. This walking by the Spirit thing, it's easier if you tell me, hey, do this, show up at this time, that's faithfulness. But this walking by the Spirit thing, when there's not commands, what is tempting for people is to add commands where commands are not. That's the root of the Galatian heresy. The Galatian heresy was, we're going to add circumcision to faith alone. And what happens is people begin to add laws that aren't Christ's laws, laws of method, Laws of specificity that Christ is not specific about. And it can lead people to try to accumulate teachers, as it says in the scriptures, that just agree with them. And so, Paul says this. Preach the word. How are you going to endure? Preach the word. That means, I'm going to give you a list. Timothy, leaders at this church, church at large, don't cut out passages that make you feel uncomfortable. Don't cut out passage about the judgment of God on sinners who will not repent. Don't make Jesus secondary. Don't cut out hard sayings. Don't cut out passages that rebuke. And don't cut out passages that encourage. Don't cut out passages that demand discipline and those that demand unity. Don't cut out parts of the Bible that address gender roles or marriage standards. Don't cut out parts of the Bible that were socially progressive and advocating for women and minorities in a Jewish-dominated or Egyptian-dominated or Roman-dominated, depending on where you are in the Bible culture. Don't cut out parts of the Bible that demand that His church be a church of all peoples and the gospel requires sacrifice of stuff and your very life to take that gospel there. Don't cut that out. It's going to cost you your life. Don't cut out parts of the Bible that demand God's church to care for the poor among us and in our world. Don't cut out parts of the Bible that demand God's people to have God's heart and to do deeds of justice and mercy for the vulnerable, that is the poor, the fatherless, the widow, the immigrant, the oppressed, the slave, the infants or unborn, the wrongfully imprisoned. Don't cut it out. Don't cut out parts of the Bible that sound too Republican and don't cut out parts of the Bible that sound too Democratic. Let the Bible speak. Don't cut out parts of the Bible. And above all, don't cut out parts of the Bible that say Jesus is the greatest treasure in all the universe. He's our aim. He's our delight. May we treasure Christ above all. Here we will preach the word. We will seek to preach the whole counsel of God and it will not fit one group's ideology. Our aim is to present Christ as he is portrayed in the scriptures. We will aim to faithfulness 
in explanation and application in proclaiming his word to one another and to a lost world. Paul says to Timothy, finish strong by knowing and proclaiming the word of God. He also says, finish strong by being sober-minded. So I invite you. I invite you to preach the word. That means you've got to know it to proclaim it, right? So I invite you into the depths outside the kiddie pool to do some training in the Olympic deep end, and let's grow together. And therefore, as we grow, let's proclaim, proclaim. That's how we're going to finish strong. But let's also be sober-minded. You see that there in the text when he says, verse 5, always be sober-minded. Always be sober-minded. That means free from mental and spiritual drunkenness. He's using a physical image to teach us how to be spiritually. Don't be drunk. That means have a disciplined, self-controlled life, a well-balanced life. How will you finish strong? you got to be disciplined and self-controlled. I remember where I grew up, Seniors in high school, they took a senior trip. I went on my senior trip with a a good friend, and we went to the beach. And as we arrived at the beach to meet some friends, we found out that there was a lot of people that brought a lot of friends, and there were some people doing some things that we didn't feel quite as comfortable with. And one group that was around our group, they were drinking heavily. And this image is forever etched in my mind as what happens when that kind of over-alcohol consumption happens and you get drunk. Your speech is slurred. We were concerned that he literally was going to fall into the pool and not be able to get out because this guy was staggering around, not able to stand upright. And then this happened. He jumped on his motorcycle and we asked him not to. And he was in a parking lot. And he revved up that motorcycle and popped a wheelie. And he took off and he ran right into the back of a truck. Probably just the length of this room. I saw it with my eyes, standing on a balcony. The bike slid out. He staggered. He started running off, collapsed on the beach. This is what the outcome of a good time, of drunkenness was. And Paul here says, if we regularly neglect discipline and self-control, a similar spiritual fate can be ours. We won't finish strong. And so, He's not just talking about having too much alcohol. He is talking about the dangers of a lack of discipline and living out your relationship with the living God. The neglect of God's Word. Operating in self-sufficiency rather than prayerful dependence. Neglecting hard work. Or the opposite, neglecting or refusing to Sabbath and cease from work and resting in the Lord. Loving things more than people or loving people more than Christ idolatry, the lust of the flesh, refusing to put to death sin, neglecting the people of God, neglecting to give the Word of God to lost 
neighbors or to one another as a church. Being characterized by quarrelsomeness rather than loving, sharp rather than gentle, angry rather than a peacemaker, neglecting God's mission of proclaiming Christ. All of these things can have, left unchecked, can have a cumulative effect of a non-sober mind. A spiritual staggering, so to speak, that can lead you to wander away from your love for Christ, leave you spiritually shaky, impair your vision, and keep you from seeing things rightly. The call here to Timothy is, Timothy, examine your life. Examine your life and your doctrine, he says in 1 Timothy. And he's continuing it here. Always be sober-minded. Don't let up on that pursuit or it will affect you. It will affect you. And this is not about being perfect. You should not hear this and say, well, I made a mistake in this this week and now I'm not a Christian. That You stand by faith alone in the righteousness of Christ alone. But this is a warning. If you are refusing to listen to the prodding of the Spirit of God that is telling you you're running this way, you need to run this way, you should be alarmed. Be disciplined. Don't neglect God and His Word. That's why Paul uses the language, and you see it there in verse 7. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. Because fighting against our fleshly desires, it's a fight. (laughs) It's a fight. Our desires are all over the place. And he is saying, strive daily for a life soaked in Jesus. Live a sober, self controlled life and just to be clear to help you here many will push on that our Christian relationship is about what we avoid rather than what we go after but as Hunter Pastor Hunter laid out for us in 2 Timothy chapter 2 look at verse 22 it says that we should flee youthful passions that's avoid this but then he gives us five things to run after Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. That's four. Pursue these things. Run after these things. And I've been reading a book. It's called Gentle and Lowly by a man named Dane Ortland. Highly, highly recommend it. And he takes Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 11 when when Jesus describes himself as come to me. All who are weary have it laden, I'll give you rest. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And he pushes us to ask why Jesus describes himself in those ways. Gentle and lowly. And so I have an extended quote that I want to read to you. It's really helpful. Because when we're talking about what are we running after, we're running after this Savior who is gentle and lowly. This is the fight for faith. This is how you become sober-minded when he says this. Here's the quote. Gentle and lowly. This, according to his own testimony, is Christ's very heart. This is who he is. Tender, open, welcoming, accommodating, understanding, willing. 
If we are asked to say only one thing about who Jesus is, we would be honoring Jesus' own teaching if our answer is gentle and lowly. If Jesus hosted his own personal website, the most prominent line in the About Me drop-down would read, gentle and lowly in heart. This is not who he is to everyone indiscriminately. This is who he is for those who come to him who take his yoke upon them, and who cry out to him for help. The paragraph before these words from Jesus gives us a picture of how Jesus handles the unrepentant or the impenitent. When he says, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. So gentle and lowly does not mean mushy and frothy. I like those words. But for the penitent, for the repentant, His heart of gentle embrace is never outmatched by our sins and foibles and insecurities and doubts and anxieties and failures. For lowly gentleness is not one way Jesus occasionally acts towards others. Gentleness is who He is. It is His heart. He can't ungentle Himself towards His own any more than you or I can change our eye color. It's who we are. And this... I think, encapsulates being sober-minded. Here's the end of the quote. Only as we drink down the kindness of the heart of Christ will we leave in our wake. You get the image? The boat that runs away and the wake that scatters? We'll leave in our wake everywhere we go the aroma of heaven and die one day having startled the world with glimpses of divine kindness too great to be boxed in by what we deserve. When you see a gentle and lowly Savior, you look like that gentle and lowly Savior and you're on a mission to reflect that gentle and lowly Savior to a world who needs to know Christ. Be sober-minded, he says. And then he says, finish strong by enduring suffering. Finish strong by enduring suffering. So you follow it. Finish strong by preaching the word. Finish strong by being sober-minded. Finish strong by enduring suffering. Now, take the picture. Paul's at the end of his life. He says in verse 6, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. The time of my death is here. But he says, I've sought to be faithful. And he begins to lay the groundwork for how to endure. Some of the most precious words in the scriptures. He says, I fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Verse 8. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that last day. And not to me only, but to all who have loved his appearing. How in the world will we endure suffering We look to the end. We look to His appearing. And we begin to live our lives for that crown of righteousness. That crown is a crown that acknowledges that it's Jesus' righteousness that I build my life upon. I do not stand on my own righteousness as the merit upon which God will accept me into His presence. But I stand upon The fact that he did what I could not do. And therefore I receive that crown. 
when I see him face to face. But here's the question. What is the suffering that he's asking Timothy to endure? And then, how is Timothy supposed to endure? What is the suffering? Well, Paul's in jail. That sounds like suffering. He's probably been whipped. That sounds like suffering. But I want you to notice something, and please do not miss this. What is Paul mentioning to Timothy as his suffering? He's not mentioning his physical pain. He's, you don't read in here, I am hurting so badly physically. You don't see that. What is he talking to Timothy about? He's not mentioning the foul mouths of the Roman guards. He's not mentioning their harsh speech or their harsh treatment. He's not mentioning any of that. The suffering that is most painful, that is filling Paul's conversation to Timothy, is the suffering of a broken heart. The suffering that is filling Paul's mind the most when he says endure suffering is the suffering of a broken heart. It's his loneliness. It's watching the people he poured into and he loved abandon him and twist his words and misrepresent him and then run after the very thing he warned them not to run after. People that would be near to you when you counsel and care for them and teach them. But when Paul was having to defend himself, it says in this very passage, he found himself alone. Nobody there to defend him. You want to know what Paul's greatest suffering was? It was the suffering of a broken heart by those not just outside the church, those Inside the church. Where do we get that? Look at verse 10. Verse 9 says, Do your best, Timothy, to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world. You see the contrast. Loving his appearing and in love with this present world. The contrast is Demas was not loving the appearing. He was loving the present world. Has deserted me. And gone to Thessalonica. You want to know what the broken heart was? The man Demas he poured into loved the world and left Paul. It says in 2 Timothy chapter 1, it says that all who are in Asia turned from me. That means those who I poured into in Asia, they left me. In verse 11 here, it says Luke alone is with me. Right now, he's only got one person that's kind of visiting him. And then he goes on in verse 14, and he says this, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. One that he poured into, befriended, trained up. Rejected Paul and his message. And did great harm. And more than likely, we're not talking physical harm. We're talking about 
emotional harm. Beware of him, for he strongly opposed the message. And then Paul goes on and he says, At my first defense, when I was left to defend myself before a Roman court, look at what he says. No one came to stand by me. I was all alone. The church didn't come and stand at my defense, he says. You know what? Remarkable words come after that. May it not be charged against them. Don't hold it against them, God. That sense of love. But the hurt is there. And here he is saying, this is the suffering for the sake of the gospel. When you seek to love people to Christ, then they come in and they're a part of the church and you love them to the end. That's suffering for the sake of the gospel. It's not primarily the lashes and the imprisonment. His greatest anxiety was for the churches. His deepest wounds of suffering for those were for those inside the church, allowing differences to divide who spoke ill of him or abandoned the faith altogether. That's what makes this really shocking. Because in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, he looks at Timothy and writes him a letter. You can imagine. He's, he's getting Timothy's face in his mind, and now he writes this letter to Timothy. And here's what he says. Timothy, don't be ashamed of the testimony about the Lord or about me, but share in suffering for the gospel. I was talking to my friend Tim Kane and their church. He's a, T, he's a pastor at TCT Church in San Diego, uh, Kaleo Church in El Cajon. And he and I were talking, and they, totally unconnected to each other, they're preaching through 2 Timothy as well. And so we were talking a little bit, and we're encouraging one another. And he says this, he said, If I knew that the suffering of a broken heart is what it means to be invited into gospel ministry, I would not want my kids to be a part of that pain. Would you? Would you invite them in and say, hey, come get your heart broken. Come on. No, you would do everything you could to keep them from hurting. I don't want you to suffer. And yet Paul looks at his child Timothy, spiritual child that is, and he literally does the opposite. He looks at him. Paul about ready to die. And he says, Timothy, share in this suffering with me. Come get your heart broken for the sake of the gospel, is what he's saying. How do you do that? The only way you would invite your children into a gospel that will lead to a broken heart at times is if, one, it's necessary for the church to grow, and two, if it's worth it to join Christ in His mission. Dear friends, vulnerably, I don't know that I could have preached this message a few years ago. Wrestled. Can I invite my children to go lay your life down for the nations? Do I have the courage to say, if you want to be a pastor of a church, I want you to do that. 
And you know what? I can. I invite the teenagers in this room, the generations represented online, I invite you to share in the suffering that is love. Because Christ is worth it. He's worth it. And when you love people, it's going to break your heart. That's what happens. But the gospel will not strengthen his church here. And the gospel will not save the nations unless the people of God are convinced Christ is worth it. And so, Paul says to Timothy, endure. <laughs> endure. Because Christ is worth it. He is worth it. How in the world will you endure? 2 Timothy 4.17, he says this, But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. How in the world will you endure? Because Jesus will never leave you. He will never leave you. He's inviting us into loving the church in such a way that will break your heart. <laughs> Just think about Jesus. Who broke his heart? It was those who were the religious. They broke his heart. They crucified him. And if it happened to Jesus, don't you think it's going to happen to us? The church is the cause of Jesus' most intense suffering. Because he died in your place and in mine. And if it happened to Jesus, why would it not happen to us? How did Jesus respond? He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. How do his people respond? We endure. We don't give up. We don't run off into myths and falsehood. We preach the word. We walk soberly minded. And I want to tell you, one of the greatest anchors for my soul was 1 Timothy chapter, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. It's a song that I used to sing in church growing up. It's an old hymn. For I know whom I have believed, and I am able, persuaded that he is able to keep me. Until the end. The literal Greek of 2 Timothy 1.12 says this. For I know in whom I have put my trust. And I am convinced that he is able to guard my deposit until that day. What's the deposit? So if you go to a bank and you give your deposit to the bank. Who is holding the deposit? The bank. Whose money was it before it went to the bank? And now that it's in the bank, it's yours. So Paul is saying, my deposit, my very life, I have deposited with God. And I am convinced, no matter what comes my way, I am convinced that He will guard my life until the end. I'm convinced. I have deposited my life into His hands and I'm convinced that He will guard me. 
And so, we finish strong by enduring suffering. And finally, we finish strong by doing the work of an evangelist. This simply means proclaim the gospel. Proclaim the gospel to one another. Proclaim the gospel to the lost. The Savior is calling us to proclaim the gospel. And here he is saying, join Paul in his mission to proclaim the gospel and to proclaim it to the ends of the earth. I'm reading a book right now entitled Brother Andrew. Brother Andrew lived a life of great faith as a missionary going from place to place behind the Iron Curtain in order to get the gospel into these very difficult countries. And the story after story of how God showed up and gave him opportunities and provided for his needs all because he was committed to the mission of taking the good news to lost people. I was encouraged. I was encouraged to look for opportunities even during this COVID season. I had a neighbor that moved out of my house and I felt really burdened that I needed to go talk to them. And therefore you have social distancing. Some people don't want you near them, right? So I wrote them a letter. Sharing the gospel of Jesus with them. Telling them that I cared for them. There was a family in my neighborhood that found out that I was a pastor and they wanted us to pray over their family. This family is from Brazil and they had come in and I'm just so encouraged by them. I, we have loved hanging out with them and spending some time at a distance with them in our neighborhood. And they have encouraged me and I pray that we have encouraged them being able to share the beauties of Jesus with them. Our eyes must see our neighbors around us. Our mouths must proclaim that Christ is our all. Must call people to repentance and call people to faith. That's how we finish strong. So church, join me. Let's be unified together under the blood of Jesus. Preach the word. Always be sober-minded. Endure suffering for the sake of the gospel. And do the work of an evangelist. Proclaim Christ. Let's pray. Father, I love you and I thank you. Thank you that you are with us and you will never leave us. And I just pray that today we are running after a gentle and lowly Savior. A Savior who will not give up on us. A Savior who cares for us, a Savior who is obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, a Savior who will judge the living and the dead. But you're called a Savior because you have spared all of us by faith in Jesus, and you call us right now. Any who are listening right now, Father, I pray that you would stir in the hearts and you would bring people to faith in Jesus. I ask that you would strengthen your church. I ask, oh God, that you would be supreme and treasured above everything. I ask that what we leave in our wake, the wake of our lives, is a remarkable, striking kindness that reflects the love of our Savior and is willing to lay our lives down in calling people to repentance and faith in Christ. Father, use this church to see people changed here in our city and to the ends of the earth. 
Help us to finish strong. In Jesus' name, amen.